Um, we are in the book of Luke, chapter 19. Uh, we're at the end of this chapter, and we will be in this last paragraph here of this of this um, of this chapter. We have we've gone through the triumphal entry. We've gone through Jesus's kind of march or walk to Jerusalem to the cross. He has uh, done his triumphal entry. He has weeped over Jerusalem and its coming judgment. And now we, he enters the temple. Verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful to be in your house this morning, Lord. We are thankful to hear from your word. Lord, we are thankful to have the opportunity to give to tithe and to give all offerings unto you, trusting you, Lord, with our, our money, trusting you, Lord, that you will use it for your glory, but also, Lord, that you're the provider of all things. And, Lord, we know that you have commanded us to be givers, and, Lord, you give us an opportunity to worship you through our giving. You've given us opportunities to worship you with our, our mouth through singing, through times of prayer and confession, trusting, Lord, that you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness, trusting, Lord, that the blood of Christ is sufficient for our sins. Lord, we came here to worship and praise you, Lord, and Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, be encouraged and challenged by your word, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. You would convict us of sin in our lives, that you would guide us into truth and to live according to your word. That's what we desire. We desire not to live any other way but by your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage your people this morning to do so. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us because they are sick. We've had some sickness in the church over the last month, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would come to the end of this, that all of us would be together for worship soon. We pray for those who are traveling. We pray for those who are traveling back to Evansville to start school very soon. We pray that they would get here safely. We pray that their move-in into, into their dorms would be without too much effort, Lord. And Lord, we just praise you. We thank you, Lord, that we have a place to worship. We pray for our other churches uh, and our association of churches. Lord, we pray for them as well. We pray for their pastors. Lord, we pray that they would stand on the word of God alone and nothing else. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the title of this sermon is The Need the Need for Christ's Prophetic prophetic Voice. The Need for Christ's Prophetic Voice. Um, since I know we've kind of gone through, and I, I, I want to say this, uh, this passage, obviously, there's a, Jesus goes into the temple, right? And he's, uh, you know, of course, his, uh, Luke's details are not as, as, as detailed as Matthew or Mark's, Mark's description of Jesus cleansing the temple. But as we know from the other gospel stories, Jesus is turning tables, right? He's pushing out sellers and money changers, and so this, this passage is obviously, there. Jesus is operating as a prophet. He is operating as one who, who goes into the house of the Lord and he says, you are doing things wrongly. And of course, God ha Christ has the authority to do that. And so I want to talk about something. This is a term that is very political. 
my, my intentions this morning is not to be political. I'm just using terms that you know as political. Um, and this particular term has become very political over the last eight years. Is the word evangelical. Who is an evangelical? For some of you in this room, you're like, I don't even know what that word means. I've never even heard that word in my entire life. Some of you know what this word means. For some, you've only heard it in a church-related context, and some of you have only heard it in a political context. But I'm telling you today, in our kind of world, in our culture today, this word means two different things. The word evangelical. David Bibbington, who is a, was a church historian, wrote a book on the history of evangelicalism. And he basically, in his book, gives four basic marks or components or attributes of evangelical. That throughout history, these, if, if a church or a person declared themselves evangelical, these four things would be attributes of their belief. The first one is that a belief in the ultimate authority of the whole Bible. And, and the reason why I say the ultimate authority of the whole Bible is, is where, where Catholics kind of put Bible and tradition on the same plane. Evangelicals would disagree with that. They don't believe traditions are on the same plane or equal to an authority to God's word. And the reason why I say whole is because mainline Protestant uh, denominations, more liberal denominations in America, do not hold that the whole Bible has authority, only certain parts. Evangelicals believe the entire Bible, every word of the Bible has authority because it's God's word. All of the Bible is God's word. The second thing is, is Jesus, this is about Christ, Jesus. Jesus is the divine son, born of a virgin, raised bodily from the dead. They believe that Christ's death on the cross atoned for sin and reconciled sinful humanity to a holy God. If you were evangelical, you would agree to that statement that we are saved only by the blood of Christ. No more, no, nothing else. No works by me, no other institution, but only by Christ are we saved, redeemed, delivered, justified. The third one is about conversion. This is a belief that changed lives are changed by the gospel of Christ. And the only way lives are changed is by the gospel of Christ. And so what do we do? We believe that people need to believe in Christ to be changed, not go to church, not simply call themselves a Christian, but someone who actually believes in Christ Jesus, believes that his atoning sin on the cross or his atoning, atoning death on the cross is sufficient for their sins. And people have to believe that. They have to have faith in that. The last one is an activism that a Christian, an evangelical, believes that their lives are, to a, are a service to God, especially in sharing the Christian message and taking it to the far reaches of the world. An evangelical believes that not only do we believe it, but we have to proclaim it. We have to tell people about the gospel. We have to go to the farthest ends of the world to share the gospel. And throughout history, an evangelical believed in those four things, not three things, not two things, not one of those things, but all four things if you believed in that, you were an evangelical. However, Lifeway, the uh, kind of the Southern Baptist Convention Sunday School uh, institution, they're kind of there, they sell a lot of their, their curriculum for their Sunday School classes and for their church, also have a research uh, organization um, un, kind of underneath this institution. Um, they did this research study in 2015, and they were asking evangelicals if they believe these four things, 
And they found out that 29% of white Americans affirmed all four marks. Only 29%. 44% of African Americans affirmed all four markers. 30% of Hispanic Americans affirmed all four markers. And 17 other ethnicities affirmed all four markers. Really, evangelicalism starts with the Great Awakening that happened in the 1700s. And what the, the Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were doing were calling people out of nominalism and national faiths and declaring they must be born again, that they must put their faith in Christ alone, that they're not a Christian just because they're an American or they're British. They're, an American, they're, they're a Christian because of their faith in Christ alone. And this is what the Great Awakening was about. That's why there were so many people in America and Britain that became Christians during the Great Awakening because people actually thought they were Christians just because they were nationalities, what their nationality was, and actually they never believed in the actual gospel itself. And that's what evangelicals started as, and however, this is where we are now, that when you ask people who declare themselves evangelical, only small percentages of them actually believe these four basic markers. That if you are a Christian here, hopefully you agree to all those four markers that I just mentioned. Thomas Kidd wrote about what evangelical is today is really not a theological term. It's not even a Christian term. It's really actually a political term. Whites especially who consider themselves religious and vote Republican tend to be titled or given this label as evangelical. You're born an evangelical. You're not born again as one today. No longer is it associated with theology, and unfortunately, it's linked inseparably with politics. Not only politically, but more linked with certain traditions, like and non-alcohol, non-tobacco, non-tattoos, and other legalistic ways of thought than the Bible alone. Too much of the word evangelical has very little to do doctrine and beliefs or the Bible or Jesus, and it has far more, unfortunately, to do with politics or tradition. Lifeway research confirmed that many who identify as evangelicals don't actually hold to basic evangelical beliefs, such as Christ's atoning death or Jesus as the unique Savior. So then what are churches teaching? What is the center of their identity? It's not the gospel of Christ alone, unfortunately. It's this sort of synergistic combination of moralism, traditional values, and uplifting Christian language that make up the center of many evangelical churches. For most, this has become a recipe for attendance, growth, sustainability, and financial gain, either through podcasts, book sales, conferences, and charitable giving, which goes all right with what we're going to talk about today. I believe the church in America needs Christ's prophetic voice today because Christ is not the center of many churches, not many evangelical churches, and that has to change. It has to change. So here's the, here's the big point. The true house of God has the gospel of Christ alone as the center of its worship, and the true people of God are attentive to Christ's word. The true house of God has the gospel of Christ alone as the center of its worship, and the true people of God are attentive to Christ's words. So point number A, if you're taking notes, the prophet of God. 
the prophet of God. So Jesus, he's, like I've said before, he's, he's, visit, he's gone through Jerusalem. He's entered the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday, as we tend to call it. The week that starts his Passion Week. The week that starts his, his walk to the cross. Luke says that he then weeped over Jerusalem. He weeps about its, its rejection over, of him, its rejected, uh, rejection of the salvation of his father, and its coming judgment that will come. And then he enters the temple. He enters the temple courts and he begins to drive out those who sold or who were selling. You, you're probably thinking, like, that seems like a really odd uh, event that this man walks into the temple and just goes berserk, right? That he just starts pushing people out, driving people out. People are sitting down, they're, they're money, there's money changing going on, there's selling going on, animals are being sold, they're doing business. They probably have been doing this for years and years and years and had no problems with it. And Jesus, the Son of God, comes into this court and starts to push them out and drive them out. What gives Jesus the right to do this? Why can't we do something like that? Because Jesus is operating as the true prophet of God. Yes, he's the king, king. He's the true king of God. He's the son of David. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he's also the prophet. He is the true prophet. He speaks the words of God. He is operating as a prophet, very similar to Moses. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that, Jesus, that Moses writes down the words of God, right? This is the law of God, and he writes it down. He's the spokesman for God. He prosecutes the terms of the covenant of God. He upholds the holiness of God. And he instructs and he leads the people in this way. We even know the story of the golden calf, right? When Moses comes down from the mountain, what did he do? He was burned with anger because of their idolatry. They're worshiping a golden calf. What does he do? He throws the tablet at him. He then burns the, uh, the calf into a powder. And then what does he do? He makes them drink it. That's a prophet. And Jesus is doing a similar thing. He's angry about what's happening in the temple courts, and he is led to push them out. He is the prophet. He is the prophet of God. He is operating as the role of the prophet of God to make the people aware of their sin and disobedience to God and their unfaithfulness to God. Jesus is the true and better prophet. We know he's a better prophet than Moses. Why? Because he is God. John chapter 1, verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. He is God. So not only does he just, is he a spokesman for God, he is God. This is true about God. So when Jesus is walking to the temp, into the temple and he sees what's happening, he has a problem with it and he has the authority to do something about it because he's God. Jesus has the right and authority over your life as well. He is Christ, the Son of the living God. All things were created through him. He is the Lord. And he has a major problem with what is taking place in the temple of God. And so he acts like a prophet and he begins purifying the temple. Point number two is the temple of God. So as the prophet of God, he has the right and authority to 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 cleanse the temple, to purify the temple, to push these people out of the temple. This is his father's house. 
He said, I am the, I am the, I'm sent by my Father. I am the Son of God. I've known the Father for eternity. All things were created through me and by me, and I have authority and power, and therefore we have a problem with what's going on in the temple of God. He walks into the temple and casts out those who are selling the table of the money changers, as Matthew gives us more details, that there was tables that were set up and people were exchanging money. Because why? Because people from other parts of the world were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover and they had to trade in their currency for the currency that was accepted in the temple. If you've been overseas, uh, some of you have been either to Nepal with us or you've been to other parts of the world, what do you have to do when you go to the airport? You have to take your dollars and exchange it for the currency of the nation that you're in. So when the, when the people would come to the Passover and they had to pay the temple tax or they had to buy a sacrificial animal, they had to pay it in the currency that was acceptable in the temple. And so you had people who were money exchangers who would sh- exchange money and they had these tables set up. And they were money counters and they were counting and exchanging money. And also those were, that were sitting there around near these table uh, of the money changers were those who sold pigeons and other animals for the business of the temple. And so business was operating. Profit was being made. And this was happening in the outer courts. This was a large area that Jesus walked through. This was considered the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not able to go to the other layers of the temple, but they were able to worship God and pray to God in the court of the Gentiles. And this is where these Jews who set up their temples were operating their business. Basically, they had set up a a bazaar for merchants and bean counters. Have any of y'all ever been to the Middle East and been to a bazaar? I've been to Istanbul. Istanbul has the Grand Bazaar. If you've seen one of the, uh, I think, uh, uh, one of the James Bond movies, I can't remember the one, Um, uh, there's actually a scene in the beginning of the movie where they're actually on a motorcycle chase on top of the Grand Bazaar. And it's it's a massive bazaar. You walk into it, and you've got merchants and shops everywhere selling rugs, selling lanterns, selling T-shirts, selling anything you possibly imagine is being sold in this bazaar. What ends up happening in a big shopping area like this? No different than Christmas in the mall during Christmas. It's noisy. It's polluted with noise. And God's house, which is meant for prayer and reflection and confession and worship is noisy and busy and polluted with profit and greed. Think about a church. If you had a church that you went and worshiped, and instead of there being pews and a place for quiet reflection, instead it was full of shops and people doing commerce and business. You would not be able to focus. You would not be able to concentrate. You would not be able to think about God in the way that is appropriate. Jesus has a problem because these Jews have literally just don't care about Gentiles being able to know God, and so they set up their tables and they do their business. Preventing Gentiles to worship God in peace. It's interesting about the book of Luke is that Luke has been continually telling us uh, from Luke chapter 4, verse 18, which I've said is kind of the thesis statement for Luke's gospel, that Jesus came to do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor. Who were the poor in the first century Jewish world? Don't think of it simply economically. See, in our world, we think of poor as people who have no money and rich as people who have money. In that particular day and age, there was far more to just being 
money, economically rich or economically poor. For a first century world, if you lived in Jerusalem or you lived in the Palestine area and you are someone who was considered poor, this was true about you. Either you're, you're economically poor or you were a Gentile, and so Jews considered you poor, or you were someone who was sick, or you were someone who was persecuted, or you had a dishonored status. You were someone who was unfavored by God. That's why you're poor. Tax collectors were not poor economically. They were actually quite good, well off economically, but they were considered poor because God didn't favor their what? Their, 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 their job. And so Jews in that day and age would look down upon tax collectors. Zacchaeus was a rich man, but he was a tax collector, so therefore he was poor. And I hope that makes sense. Sinners were poor. So when the Pharisees had an issue with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they in that society would be considered poor. And Jesus proclaims the good news to the poor, the marginalized of the Jewish society. The rich were the privileged, the powerful, those of the religious class. So if you were a priest or a Levite, or any who worked in the court, temple court, you were considered rich. You were someone who was privileged. Why? Because you were someone who worked in a favorable vocation, and God favored you. In God's house, there are no barriers of separation. Yet the Jews, instead of being a light to the nations, were a barrier to the nations. Even though they were created in, in Exodus, that they were to be God's kingdom, his holy nation, a people that proclaimed the beauty of God and the majesty of God. And Isaiah chapter 2 says that the nations will flow into Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the, God, the one true God. That, that, that Israel was supposed to be a light that beaconed people to come and know God. And instead, they were actually creating barriers for people to actually know who God is. They were being a, instead of being a light to the nations, and the marginalized, they built barricades to the poor. So Jesus has a problem with this. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the temple of God. These businessmen are under the authority of the Jewish leaders. It's not like they were doing this like incognito, as if no one knew what they were doing. No, they had permission to do this. I would even bet that the Jewish leaders got a little money on the side. And back in those days, you don't let people just simply do things to make profit in your area of expertise or your area of authority, you get a little money on the side. They've removed God and placed profit, greed, and ultimately idolatry to the, in the center of the temple of God. Which is really no different than when the Greek rulers came into the temple and sacrificed pigs, right? The Jews were outraged, right? Because they were desecrating God's temple and altar. When the Romans, when Pompey came into the temple and desecrated the temple, the Jews went berserk. They were really not doing that much different, were they? They were polluting. They were desecrating God's kingdom, God's temple, and using it for their gain and not putting God at the center of it. It's God's house, right? It should bear his name. It should bear his character. It should be about his works and about his mission which is to make his name known, to know that God is full of steadfast mercy and grace and faithfulness, that he is the, he is the one true God. He is Yahweh, 
I am the I am. His temple should beckon that. It should declare that. It should should project and proclaim that. And instead, it proclaimed barriers. Barriers to God. What does... What does this have to do with, what is this transactions? What is this business? What is these money changing? What do these selling of animals have anything to do with God's name, character, works, or mission? Instead, you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've turned the temple of God into a den of robbers, Christ says. Another way to say this is like a cave for outlaws. It's like Terrorists plotting a terrorist attack in the temple of God. It's how bad that is to God. They think this is an innocent thing. They're just simply doing business. What's the big deal? And Christ, as the true prophet of God, says, what you're doing is an outrage, is an abomination to my Father's name. And Jesus is an outrage. He's outraged. The prophet of God, who has authority to do what he is doing, declares what is happening wrong. It's wrong. We tend to do this at times as well, don't we? When we know people and we love people and they do things that are sinful and wrong, what do we do? We correct them with God's word. Jesus does this then. He uses Jeremiah and says, you have made the house of God into a den of robbers. God, Jesus uses God's word to rebuke them. We do not want people to misrepresent Christ. We do not want people to misrepresent the church. We do not want people to misrepresent God. And so what do we do? We correct them in God's word. Sometimes we have friends that we love and we don't want those relationships to get ruined, but yet they're misrepresenting Christ. And so typically in those situations, the friendship is more important than Christ, and so we don't want to mess that up, and so we let that person continue to misrepresent Christ. And we don't, through God's word, rebuke, correct, reproof. Jesus does this. These people think they're doing the work of God in Christ corrects them. He rebukes them. He is in outrage over what they're doing through God's word. He says, you've made the house of God into a den of robbers. Does your life represent the truth of the gospel of Christ? Does it point people to God? What do people see and they hear when they see your life? When they hear you talk, when they see you work, what do they see? Do they see a house of God or do they see a den of robbers? Is Christ the center of your life? Is he the center of what you do? The church is the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Christ dwells in us and through us. We, God, is, should be the center of his church. It should be the center of your life if you're a believer in Christ. We are being built up into a temple of God. Christ Jesus is our cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2. We are temples of God. Does your life and our lives together, rooted in Christ alone, or is it privilege? Is it power? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it knowledge? Is it affirmation? Is that the center of your heart and our heart, or is it Christ alone? Is it the gospel alone? Is that the center of your life? Is it the center of our life? Are we focused on other things other than the gospel of Christ? Are you in your life focused on things that are not the gospel of Christ? If you are, you're falling into the same trap these 
groups did as money changers and those who were selling animals. They forgot about God. They didn't care about God. All they cared about was profit. All they cared about is money. We need the prophetic voice of Christ today. Your heart belongs to Christ alone. This church belongs to Christ alone. May the power of Christ cleanse our hearts with his truth and his grace. If you are a Christian, you want the prophetic voice in your life. You want Christ to say, you're living in sin, you need to get out of it. You want Christ to use Christians and brothers and sisters in your life to say, hey, you're living in sin, you need to get out of it. You need to put Christ as the center in your life and not this or that. Not a relationship, not money, not power, not privilege. The last point is this. The prominent people in God's kingdom have one distinct attribute. One distinct attribute. So Jesus He does this. Obviously, this is going to cause a stir. It says in 47, he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chiefs and priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. I love how the, the passage really kind of transitions without very many details. So Jesus does this. He's in outrage. He, he pushes them out, right? He says that, my house is a house of, my, my father's house is a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And then it says he was teaching daily in the temple, right? I mean, you may not have thought about when you read that or when you heard that. Here's what's happened. Jesus has taken control of the temple. What is he doing? He's teaching. No longer are these people selling. He's taken control of this area. He's become the center of the temple. Christ doesn't ask for permission, okay? He's God. He's, he is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He knocks the door down. He doesn't knock outside the door waiting for you to come to the door. He knocks it down. He invades whatever space he wants to invade. He fills it with himself and his word, regardless if you try to stop it. He does what he does. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the Lord. Everything that touches he declares mine is his. That includes your own life, includes your own heart, includes your own house, includes your church. Whatever the Lord declares his is his. He doesn't ask for permission. So Jesus doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, do you mind if you move your tables out of the way so that I can teach daily? No, no, he just pushes them out and says, I'm going to teach daily. Of course, this is called the stir, Right? This is Christ's people in his church, and he reigns. I love Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, if you want to turn to it real quick. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness, ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Lord, Christ Jesus, if you are a child of God, if you are one of Christ's people, he reigns over you. He redeemed you and you belong to him. His church belongs to him. It doesn't belong to the pastor. It doesn't belong to the pope. It doesn't belong to any other person who declares they have authority in the church. Christ Jesus 
owns and has possession over the people and the church itself. He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't wait for a return call. He has authority. But so why do some of you seek to destroy his word, taking residency in your heart, Philly? Some of you I'm speaking to you directly. You are preventing. You are putting up barriers. You're like, I want a little Jesus. I don't want a bunch of Jesus. What are you doing? Why? Why are you seeking to destroy his influence in your life? Who would want to do that? Why would you want to be against Christ Jesus? He has authority. He has power. He's the Lord God. Why would you want to do that? These chief priests and these scribes and these principal men of the people, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to stop Jesus' influence. They're trying to stop as if they have any control whatsoever or any power or authority. Jesus was a threat to this group's power, wealth, and status. I lo- it's so interesting about Jesus' life. This really starts in the beginning when he is born. What happens when Herod and the people of Jerusalem hear that Jesus, the son of God, Jesus is a new king that's being born in Bethlehem? What do they do? It says that they were troubled. It says that all of Jerusalem was troubled by this news. They were troubled when he was born, and they're troubled at the end. They've been troubled through his entire life. They're troubled by Christ. They see him as a threat. Because what Jesus is truly doing is there's a spiritual takeover. He is the Lord to all. He starts with Mary. What is Mary is this young girl from Nazareth that God uses to be the mother of Christ... It's remarkable. He didn't pick a royalty or some woman of, of, glory, of fame or, or beauty or any of these type of things. He picks this young girl in Nazareth. We think of Levi, the tax collector, who becomes Matthew. Jesus picks this guy to be one of his disciples and eats with him and his friends. He interacts with prostitutes, with Roman centurions, with the sick, the lame, the blind, tax collectors, and fishermen. Jesus spends all his time with them. He influences and, and uses them to, to further his kingdom. It's a spiritual takeover. He's using the poor and the marginalized to take over the world. It's a spiritual takeover. And they see this coming, and there's nothing they do can stop it. And they think that they can somehow destroy him. He gives grace and love and embraces the unexpected people. The main reason for this group's rejected of him as the Messiah is because he gives grace to the unexpected people, because he eats with sax collectors and sinners, because he forgives the sins of those who are lame. He's, this is the reason they have a problem with him. They don't care that he does miracles. They care that he does it on the Sabbath. They, they care that he's interacting with prostitutes and sinners and, and, the, and the poor. They have an issue with this. Why, are they not, why is he not spending time with us? Why is he not showing favor to us? How can you associate with sinners? This can't be. How can the Son of God, the true Messiah, associate with sinners? This is not the way that it's supposed to be. He is guilty of sin. He must be the devil. He has a troublesome influence on the people. So what did they do? They sought to find a way to kill him. Silence the influence. Neutralize the threat. And so they failed, though, to do this quickly. They had to get some, some poor uh, insider, Judas, to do the work for them. Because why? Because all the people were hanging on his words. They feared the people. They're such cowards, really. I mean, the chief priests and the scribes and these prominent men of Jewish society and Jerusalem society, they're actually cowards. They actually find Judas to do their dirty work. They're scared of the people. 
because the people are attentive to Christ's words. They're going into the temple and hearing Christ teach daily. The true prominent people are those who are attentive to Christ's words. These chief priests and these scribes and these principal men of the people, they thought they were the prominent people in God's kingdom, and they were so wrong. And that was their problem. Jesus was teaching daily to these people, and they were attentive to his words. They were the true prominent people in God's kingdom. Tax collectors, sinners, became the prominent people in Christ's kingdom through his amazing grace. So we have to ask the question, as Americans, why are we trying so hard to be prominent in the world? Like, why are we trying so hard? Like, what are we doing? I mean, just take this as an example. They worked so hard to be prominent, and then Jesus gave grace to the unexpected and the people who weren't prominent, and they had a problem with that. Why would we, who have Jesus, strive so much to be prominent in a world that hates our Savior and Lord, who gives grace to the people who aren't prominent? Why are we trying so hard when the prominent in God's kingdom are the ones who are focused and tended to Christ's words alone. If you struggle to listen to God's word preached, taught, or simply reading it, you need a heart change because you're not being attentive to Christ's words. Christ's people should be eagerly attentive to God's word. This is the distinct attribute of the prominent people in God's kingdom. Are you attentive to his word? That right there, that detail, that distinct attribute, if you do not have that, if you lack it, if you honestly don't care about Christ's words or you could take it or leave it, then you're probably not a Christian and you probably need to pray that God would save you so that you would be attentive to his word. What does this all mean here? Here's a conclusion. Make the gospel of Christ center in your life. Make the gospel of Christ centered in the church and nothing else. Nothing else. Not attendance, not money, not certain traditions, but the gospel of Christ alone and nothing else. Rudolf Pesch said, the calling of the disciples is a call to follow Jesus and being set aside for missionary activities Calling, discipleship, and mission belong together. That is the calling of a Christian, is to follow Christ alone. Do not be concerned with agendas or missions that are not God's agenda or missions. He desires to make his name and character and works and mission known to the world around you and through you. When we concern ourselves with our own agendas or our own missions, we without fail misrepresent our Lord and Savior without fail. Every time we will misrepresent. You may think you're not doing it, but if you make anything or any other agenda or any other mission other than Christ or God's, you will undeniably, without fail, misrepresent. You will create a barrier for people to know God, just like what these people were doing. Look at the consequences of misrepresenting God. Look at the consequences. Don't, don't go, well, I, about right Jesus did that. Don't think about your own life. Think about the groups of Christians you're with. If you are making any other agenda or any other mission more important than God's agenda or mission, then you will ultimately misrepresent. You do not want to misrepresent God. You do not want to misrepresent Christ. You do not want to do that. Look at the consequences. We need Christ's prophetic voice today. We as 
evangelical Christians who go to an evangelical church, who are surrounded by evangelicals who go to evangelical church, we need Christ's prophetic voice more today than ever before. We need to be open to God's word. We need to be open to rebuke. We need to be open to correction. We need to humble ourselves to God's word alone and say without, without hesitation that Christ Jesus and him alone is all that matters and is all that's centered into what we do as a church and as, as Christians. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you humbly asking that you would be the center of our lives, the center of our church. And Lord, if there is anything else that is more important, if we have other agendas or missions that we are concerned with other than you, Lord, that you would bring those to mind and bring those to our hearts, that we would confess those, that we would remove those, and Lord, that you would put the gospel as the center here. Lord, we do not want to misrepresent you. We don't want to ignorantly misrepresent you, Lord. Where we want to be faithful. We want people who see us and see the church to go, I want to know that God. I want to know that Savior. I want to know more about that. Or, I want nothing to do with that God. I want nothing to do with that Savior and Lord. May Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord, that you would make us holy and pure and blameless in every way. Lord, there's anyone here, Lord, that can be honest with themselves that they are misrepresenting you to the world, that they are proclaiming things either in their habits or in their thoughts that are not biblical, they're not of your word. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to their hearts and minds, that they would confess those, that they would talk to someone about them, that they would live their lives tentative to your word alone. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's not a follower of Christ, that they have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord, that they think that they're a Christian because they were born into it. No one's born into faith. You're born again from sinfulness to life. You're not born into eternal life or to salvation. You're born into sin and hell. They have to be called out of it. And if they don't believe, Lord, that Jesus is the true Son of God, that he atoned their sins on the cross, then they're not a Christian. And I pray that you would save them out of that ignorance and that deception and that lie, and that you would transform their hearts. Lord, we praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.